Okay, hi everyone. Today, um, my new friend, I'm obsessed with you, dear Phyllis. Um, <laughs> Phyllis Fagel is here, um, the author of the new book, Middle School Matters. It came out in August, right? Yes, August 5th. Okay, so super important topic, not just for middle school parents, right? I would agree. I think you could read it a few years before middle school, but honestly, I think middle school is a metaphor for life. I've been hearing from parents with older kids who say it's almost equally applicable to their high schoolers. Right, exactly. So a little bit before and possibly a little after, especially if developmentally your kids are not exactly where their classmates are, right? So yeah, that's give, true. Yeah, give us a little bit about why you wrote this book. So I wear multiple hats. I started out as a journalist before I was a school counselor and a therapist. And what happened is I actually didn't write for a very, very long time. And I had been working with kids and working in schools. And I started to notice that parents in my private practice were frustrated with what was happening in schools and also frustrated with maybe what was happening socially with their child. Didn't completely understand developmentally what was going on. It's such an abrupt change when you hit that tween phase and kids often shut down or they start having challenges with organization and, and, and socially and interpersonally in ways they never struggled before or maybe anxiety. And on the other hand, schools were frustrated with parents and I was hearing from teachers that parents, that, that the parents were either enabling their children, maybe bringing them in the lunch they forgot or the sports equipment they forgot or helping them too much with their homework, or they were too hands off. It was almost as if they didn't know what their role was anymore. And because it didn't seem like they were as welcome in the school, they weren't sure if they should be there at all or, or how they should be interacting with the school. So I wrote the book to bridge that divide to help build understanding between home and school and to help everybody have a heightened awareness of the developmental stage and the needs of kids in this age group. Okay, so this is um, obviously those of you guys who are listening who've been part of the Little Ohm community for a while know that I now have a middle school child, which is why <laughs> I'm obsessed with this topic and what's happening in my life. And this, what you just touched on with the sort of over-parenting and under-parenting, I'm mm -hmm. really lost, right? We're getting sent a lot of mixed messages. On one hand, helicoptering and enabling um, is extremely harmful long-term for our kids. And then on the other hand, at that last year of elementary school, there's all this talk of, well, when you get to middle school, when you get to middle school, you're on your own. You've got to do all this executive functioning, your assignments, your calendars yourself. So can you talk a little bit about those two sort of extremes and what happens in the middle, what that really looks like? Yes. Yes. And I think that that's where the disconnect is coming in. And that sort of relates back to my original career as a journalist, because when I started writing about this age and the phase, I was trying to incorporate evidence-based practices and what does the research say parents should be doing or educators should be doing with kids in this age group because everybody was confused. And, and as a result, when you couple that with people's dread of the phase in general, a lot of people haven't had the most positive middle school experience or they don't remember it as the most positive time in their, mm -hmm. in their life. So I think some people are tempted to just take a big step back and not be involved, and, and that seems safest because their kids don't seem to want them there anyway, and schools aren't inviting them in to volunteer the way that they might have in the past. But 
it, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Kids really do want their parents involved, and they need them involved. Future planning and all of those executive functioning skills, they don't kick in, you know, for a long time. You know, prefrontal cortex isn't even fully formed until they're about 25. So a kid who is 12 is going to need support with organization and is going to need mm -hmm. scaffolding of assignments. And it doesn't mean you do it for them. And it doesn't mean you tell them how to do it, but you're a coach or a mentor, you're working with them, you're setting the scene, giving them the supplies that they need and the space that they need, and maybe talking through how long it will take and helping them anticipate how much time they need or if they want to work before or after dinner. And maybe you're helping them understand directions, but then they're doing the work. So when they were six or eight, you might have been involved in a much more direct way, telling them what to do with a tween or an you know, a young adolescent, you want to be respecting their autonomy and understanding that they're trying to individuate and they want to feel competent. So you need to give them the support in a way that allows them to be a participant with you in the process. You know, they're the architect as well, not just you. Mm -hmm. Do you have any um, specific examples that come to mind of like pretty common um, issues that come up and how you work with it in terms of this this area of sort of over and under parenting yeah would you like a in academic example or yeah let's do that example? yeah either academic okay yeah so um an academic example let's say a child doesn't do their work and they get mm -hmm. an email from their teacher there's a report on a grading portal if there's if the school has such a thing and the parent is aware that the child hasn't done their work and that the child maybe isn't doing the work because they don't understand it. You know, th there could be something else going on. And the parent's response would be to contact the teacher immediately and sit down with their child and go through everything with them and make sure that you know, sit on top of them and help them do their work. Whereas a coaching, a coaching approach would be you pull your child aside and ask them how things are going and hopefully they bring it up on their own and if they don't you can say you know i i noticed that you have several outstanding assignments in this one class you know tell me what's going on and figure out what's at the root of the problem and then you want to be problem solving with them well what can we do uh, would you like to go in to ask for extra help do you want to send an email and you if you have a sixth grader they may not even know how to send an email and so you have to work with them from where they are so let's say their sixth grade, you might sit next to them and help them draft that email and tell them how to have a proper salutation. And you may even need to follow up a few days later just to make sure that they follow through on whatever it is that they were trying to do. A seventh grader um, might need a little bit less support. Maybe you just check what they've written afterwards. And, and by eighth grade and before they leave for high school, you really want to get them to a point where they could send that email on their own and also know what they need to do. Are they the kind of kid who needs to connect with the teacher and get one-on-one -on -one support? Are they the kind of kid who needs reteaching or who could study with friends? So you want them to be developing that self-awareness and that independence with your support. They may not know what it is they need to be doing and you can help guide them, but you do want to be working toward independence. So once they can do something on their own, you don't want to do it for them ever again. You want to be mm -hmm. taking, taking that step back. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's easier to just jump in and fix it. Or, and we, we want them to have everything fixed quickly and easily. And so it can take a lot of willpower to take that step back. Well, the other thing that came up when you were talking through that too, is the time, right? The conversation, the pause, the scaffolding of sitting with them. So I think this is a really important 
part that again we sort of don't dig in we don't really talk about as we're as we're really transitioning as parents of middle schoolers is what is happening in our own lives so that we can create space to have a little bit more conversation we're so used to doing things like just like you said so quickly and checking it off and getting it done and part of that is our own stress cycle right and like our own stress cycle is activated and so in order to parent these um these kiddos with a little bit more sort of space and grace to allow them to have that it sounds like we need a little bit more time and to honor that as part of the process Yes, and making it even more difficult, you can't do it on your time frame. So with a younger child, you can just decide it's four and I'm not yet cooking dinner and I have 45 minutes and so let's do it. With a middle schooler, they might come home completely depleted. They've had these intense highs and lows all day long. Maybe they had an argument with somebody the day before that's still bothering them. They may not be able to have that conversation with you at that moment. In fact, they may want to have that conversation exactly when you're ready to pivot and do something else that has to do with your own organization (laughs) and your own life. So that's that's the other thing that's hard. I think with this age group, we we have to be willing to stop what we're doing when it's convenient for them often because that will be the most productive time to engage, especially in conversations that relate to their competency, relate to their ability to do things. They're so sensitive so uh, sure that they, you know, they're just trying to figure out if they're good enough and if they're okay as they are. And so if we try to tackle something that's a source of insecurity for them at a time when they're really not open to the conversation, we're just going to make things worse. Yeah. And what about social? I'd love to hear a social example also. So, you know, I think one of the bad reputations middle schoolers get is that they are unkind or that they're mean-spirited mm-hmm. or that they gossip. And I actually, I just taught sixth graders about an hour ago and I was sharing stories with them, scenarios where I asked them, you know, what is the kind thing to do? You know, let's say you see graffiti in the bathroom, really mean things written about somebody who's a really good friend of yours and you don't know who wrote it, but it's really mean. Would you tell your friend, is that the loyal thing to do? And, you know, they pretty much all raised their hand and said, yes, you should tell your friend. That's the loyal thing to do. It never would occur to them mm-hmm. that they could actually shield their friend from hurt feelings or they could they could just talk to a teacher or to building services and get it removed from the wall. And that by mm-hmm. heightening the emotions and by telling the friend or, you know, spreading the meanness and they're increasing the odds that more people will get involved and that they'll heighten the drama. And it's not that they want to heighten the drama. In fact, a lot of them really don't like drama at all. It's that they don't, they don't have the skills yet and they don't have their perspective and we actually need to teach that to them. So when I think about the role that parents can play with kids in this age group, we're not making their play dates for them. We're not able to be directive about who they can and can't hang out with, but we can talk to them about what is kind or unkind. We can point out mean things that we see online just to explain what might not be the right thing to do. And we can use examples from our own life Mm -hmm. and we can pose questions that get them thinking. We can make observations. You know, I, I think you're a really great friend to Jessica, but I noticed that she doesn't seem to ever be willing to do the activities you suggest. It seems like you're always doing what she suggests. And I, and I worry that you're giving too much of yourself to her. So, 
you're not saying don't be friends with Jessica, but you mm-hmm. are pointing out and getting them to think a little bit critically about whether the relationship is healthy and whether it's working for them. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Again, just sort of that time and integration and pause and conversation um, is going to be really important. Why do you think, why do we dread middle school? Why do you think they have such a bad rap? Like, my, my theory is that middle school is not necessarily inherently worse than any other time in our life, but it's, in, it's a developmental phase when you are going through puberty and you have so many changes going on at once, you know, physiologically, emotionally, athletically, you, you know, you're trying to figure out where you fit into, fit into the pecking order in, in, a, in the hierarchy, and you're trying to figure out who you are and what you're good at and what you're not good at and whether you're good enough. And so it's this intense time in childhood development. It's a super important time. And we don't have, like I said, we don't have that perspective and we're experiencing emotions and, and polarities. So I don't think what we're remembering is necessarily the specifics of what happened in relation to other things that happened later, but we're remembering them the way we experienced them at the time mm-hmm. with those heightened experience, with those heightened emotions we had at that time, because we were going through puberty because we were tweens. Mm-hmm. And then that just continues to carry on also with, all right, let's talk about technology a little bit. We can't okay. not. <laughs> so then sort of how does that, the sort of what's happening with tech, with this age group, um, again, really confirm what we're already saying about it and sort of the social norms. And then where do we go from here with tech? You know, I read a research study yesterday that I shared and it went viral because I think it was just this aha moment that made so much sense. And it was about how we know that social media has this toxicity, especially for girls, although I see boys feeling it too. Mm-hmm. And the more time they spend online research shows, the more they feel it too. So they are not immune. Mm-hmm. But this particular study was about girls. And what they did is they, they didn't ne- pull them off or change their social media habits at all. But what they did is they had them, in addition to whatever they were already doing, follow four, uh, four women in a field of interest to them who are high achievers. So somebody who is interested in space followed an astronaut. And what they found was when this girl followed an astronaut, she ended up going down the rabbit hole, she ended up following NASA, and she ended up following you know, other feeds that were related to what this woman was doing. And they discovered that doing this, adding that to their social media diet buffered them against a lot of that toxicity and that, you know, compare and despair culture that we, mm-hmm. we all know about and recognize whether we're kids or adults. So I think we have to find ways to mitigate the damage that it does. And we have to be enforcing breaks with middle schoolers in particular. They do not have the skills or the tact. They don't, they, they struggle to read social cues or to accurately read feedback and interpret feedback when they're face to face. When you take away the signals and they're online and there is no expression to work with, no tone, no body language, they really are flailing and, they, and they're really impulsive too. So parents, this is not the time for parents to pull away. They need to be spot checking and you're not looking to shame your child for making a mistake, but you, you need to be there for those moments that are learning opportunities and, mm-hmm. and to jump in. You know, I'll give you a, an example I heard mm-hmm. recently, not uh, just from, from somebody that one of my kids knows, and this was a middle schooler. There was a kid who um, got a picture of his 
of his girlfriend, you know, I think she sent him a picture of herself in a bikini, maybe at his request, top, you mm-hmm. know, from the waist up. And they thought it would be really funny to doctor it and put on, you know, big boobs mm-hmm. instead of her boobs. And mm-hmm. then because they were laughing and they thought it was funny, they decided to post it to a group chat with 45 of their friends. Mm-hmm. And when they did that, instead of getting the laugh that they had hoped they would get, they were met with almost like a shocked silence. And a couple of kids saying, you know, dude, why'd you do that? That's not appropriate. That's not okay. And they were, you know, a little bit shamed for what they had done. And at that point in time, the girl no longer was happy that she had done it and was angry at the boy. And his response was to post a doctored picture of his own torso looking like a bodybuilder, you know, so it's like getting worse with every step of the way. Mm -hmm. And he was doing that to be nice. He wanted her to feel less bad. So he wanted to embarrass Mm -hmm. himself equally. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of situation I see a lot of where people are, Kids are making mistakes not because they um, there's any ill intent, mm-hmm. but often just because they don't know better and they are inexperienced. And parents need to be there for those moments to catch them. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Uh, it's a lot uh, moving forward. And I also think I was sort of talking about this in my class at AU yesterday. We were talking about technology and long. We were actually talking about food and stress and technology and stress. And we were just having a discussion around, you know, we're in the middle of thinking we know, but the research is new and we're all new with this. And so we don't really know. Um, And some of the stuff I've seen come out lately around technology is, is more about, it's not really that harmful if it's this amount of hours and that. And so it's just a really, it can be rather confusing, especially if you like the research. There is a lot of different research out there right now saying it does hurt and then it doesn't hurt. Um, that's what I'm seeing and sharing with my AU class and just in terms of like, where's this coming from and what do you guys think about this? And then what feels right to you in your body? Um, you know, and how are you responding after you've been scrolling for 30 minutes? Like, how do you actually feel? I think returning to some of those really basic, uh, physical cues can be really helpful, mm-hmm. you know? I would agree. I would yeah. agree. And the, you know, often kids who are in this age group, you know that they're stressed because they complain of physiological symptoms. They don't necessarily, mm-hmm. they're not necessarily able to discern between physical stress and emotional stress. I have a really close relationship with our school nurse where we call each other all the time. And I'll say, I have one of yours who mm-hmm. probably actually should be down in the infirmary and she'll call me and she'll say, I have a kid with a headache, but I think he's really anxious about a test. I'm sending him up to you. So we're constantly yeah. sending kids back and forth because they don't really know how to sort themselves out. Mm-hmm. So rec- I mean, it's hard for college students. It's hard for us to know when to put on the brakes and we can get yeah, put right. stuck down that rabbit hole. Middle schoolers are really incapable of doing it on their own because they also are feeling all of that pressure. They don't want to miss out on anything. I mean, FOMO is a very real thing. I heard a brilliant idea from a parent here the other day that he called a meeting. Uh, These were kids younger than middle schoolers, and he was anticipating what might happen when they went to middle school, and he wanted to meet with the other parents to talk about how they could handle it, knowing that some parents would need to get their child a phone or would want to get their child a phone. He wasn't looking to shame people into not getting a phone, but he did want to 
anticipate problems and, and do what they could to mitigate damage. And one of the ideas that came up in that parent session was that they, as a community, could potentially say we all are going to put a moratorium on social media or texting or any, you know, interaction online between the hours of, let's say, you know, four and seven. Mm -hmm. Just to so the kids all knew they weren't going to be missing out on anything, and mm -hmm. there could be some uniformity. We, I, I work in a small community where that's actually yeah. possible. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be possible in a huge middle school. No. But even if it's a significant portion of their peers, that alone could buffer them and make them mm -hmm. feel better about not being online. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even some kids, I think, you know, even having that conversation with them, I think we talked about this a little or another one of my wonderful therapist friends talking about <laughs> the whole idea that we're not like, yes, we, I, you may have been bullied yourself in middle school, but then when you came home, you were sort of playing outside or watching MTV or like having your downtime, you weren't still getting that in that stimulation. And so like just having, I just had a conversation with my daughter about that. It's like, Hey, when you get home, let's just take a break from still having communication and stimulation with those people you're with all day um, in order to just kind of have that pause. It's that same idea of like some of these um, social issues that they're facing are not new, but the way that they have access to each other is new, right? Like it's exhausting. It's yeah. exhausting and yeah. they're depleted as it is. I tell this, yeah. you know, I often will share the story of my own son, who's now a senior in high school, who when he was in middle school, I didn't allow him on social media yeah. at all. And yeah. at the time, he was pretty mad at me. And now he says it was the best thing I ever yeah. did for him because yeah. no good came of it at that point in his life. He, he was able to text and he could stay in touch that way. And I, yeah. I think that my current sixth grader really got that message because he hasn't really been asking for a phone. So sometimes what feels painful in the moment because mm -hmm. it feels like we're isolating them socially or they just seem so distraught is actually the greater gift in the long run that we can give them. Yeah, I agree. And we, we've had the same experience where my daughter's kind of stepped back and, and um, is able to be a little bit more reflective herself on what's happening with a lot of her friends who have phones or who have TikTok and Snapchat. Mm -hmm. And I don't, she does not, she's not allowed to have them. Um, but a lot of people she knows does. And she really pushed on me that sort of first 24 hours. And I just continued to say no. <laughs> and then yeah. a few days later, she said, you know, it's really changing their behavior and their attitude and it's, and I don't want it. Um, so again, I don't want to shame anybody who's listening to this, who has, whose kids have phones or have TikTok or have snap, like chat, whatever, you know, people have to do what feels right to them. But I do want to say that we don't just have to say yes to everything and we don't have to give them everything and we don't like, it's okay for them to be upset with us for a little bit, especially just like you said, the sort of long-term, um, the longer vision and um, that feels really important right now, kind of returning to some of those values, you know? Yeah. Um, which actually 100%. brings me to your book because you separate the um, sections. Let me just go over them for people who haven't read it yet. Everybody needs to get it because mine has like all the notes and all the pages folded. Okay. So the first section <laughs> is values and integrity. The second one is social skills. The third is learning. And the fourth is empowerment and resilience. And then there's a great parent discussion guide and educator discussion guide in the back. I just want to point out in case people want to have discussion um, 
groups at their schools or their communities. I myself am going to um, put out an ask for people in our community to see if anybody would like to do a parent discussion with me because there's just so many pieces of this that I want to go deeper with people over time. And so I'm excited about starting that in our community. But I want to ask you two questions. One is, what's yeah. your favorite chapter that you wrote? And what's the most important chapter that you wrote? Wow. It's like picking your favorite child. I know. <laughs> and I gave you no heads up. People who are listening, I don't send questions before. I tell them nothing except just come on and it will be totally fine. It probably depends on the day you ask me, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not avoiding the question. But what I will say is that you know, there, those, are the, those are the sections. And then I have the 10 skills that kids need to develop by the time they, they leave. Mm -hmm. And each chapter targets different skills. And what I will say is that I think the most important chapter is the one where your child has the most growth needed, you know, the most, the, mm. the most growth edges. So for one child who's really struggling with social cues, you know, the, the most important chapter might be one of the ones related to, you know, shifting friendships, or if they struggle with being uh, empathetic, they might need to focus more on the, you might want to focus more on the chapter on kindness or gossip or bullying. Mm -hmm. uh, if your child ha is really struggling with learning challenges, that chapter probably would resonate more for you. For me personally, the chapter that I feel has the greatest, there's two chapters I think that have the greatest implications for this age group in particular. The first is the one on embracing differences. Because I firmly believe that if you can teach kids to be inclusive and to and, you know, move from a place of fear to understanding at an age where they can barely tolerate their own exceptionalities, mm -hmm. let alone someone else's, I think you're much more likely to instill a positive and healthy self-identity. So if they can really internalize that treating other people with dignity and respect and that everybody has a backstory at the time when they're most insecure and most vulnerable. I think that sets them up for uh, having a very healthy self-awareness and, and, and a happier life mm -hmm. and to navigate a difficult phase with more grace. And then the other chapter that I think is especially important in the middle school years is the one on how to teach kids to take risks in a world of no's. Because when you're a tween, you're so hypersensitive to criticism and to judgment, and you're so aware of what you know we call the imaginary audience. You know, everybody is staring at you. Everyone sees that your hair is frizzy. You know, and mm -hmm. you you just are so self-conscious and so risk-averse because. To an adult, you know, maybe if you look back at a, flubbing a lab in science, it's not that big of a deal, but it can be a really big blow to the ego for a kid or, mm -hmm. you know, sitting with even a social risk, sitting with somebody at another cafeteria can be a major act of bravery. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've been sitting with a different group all year and you suddenly get up and move, I mean, that's like a big deal in middle school. Mm -hmm. But if you can teach them to take those risks, whether they're social, whether it's academic, whether it's public speaking, whether it's putting yourself in an uncomfortable situation of any kind, if you can teach them how to do that at, during this phase when they are so, so risk averse, Again, I think that that will pay dividends for the rest of your life. You're just going to be more willing to put yourself out there in every context forever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And especially with, I know that's a lot of like the Jonathan Haidt coddling of the American mind. Like it's, a, it's, if it's the safest it's ever been, but we're more protective than we've ever been. Um, 
it's really challenging to learn to take risks. And he always says like, have your kids get lost. <laughs> you know, like it's really important to get lost because it's really important to find your way back. Um, and so I think it just really nicely sort of correlates with what's, what else is going on in sort of development. And again, like I read a lot of that on the higher ed side, but this is where it starts. Is like if we're not taking risks as we're getting more of our sense of self and individuation and like being able to have independence, then that's why now we have these off the charts, anxiety, depression, and suicide rates in college, you know? Yeah, um, we reinforce yeah. for them that they can't do it yeah. when we, when our fear gets in the way. Now, I tell a story in the book about my own kid in eighth grade going to China, mm-hmm. um, where he is, he, he's literally in China on a you know, week-long trip, and they have had an exhausting day. They've been to the Great Wall. They've gone out to dinner. They're in the bus, and they're heading back to the hotel, and he falls asleep on the bus, and everyone gets off the bus, and they don't realize that he didn't get off the bus. And he wakes up several hours later, you know, it's late at night, it's dark, he's on the lost bus in a parking lot somewhere in Beijing with no money, no phone, no Mandarin skills. And he's got to figure out how to get off the bus and back to a hotel without even knowing the name of the hotel. It is such an extreme example, mm-hmm. but you know what? He did it. And so he's not, he's the child who's now the senior in high school. He has been, you know, on several risky trips since then he's traveled alone to many places. He feels really competent in mm-hmm. situations that most people would find scary. And I, and I, he, he himself attributes a lot of that to realizing that he can be put in a really difficult situation and he can find a way to navigate himself out of it. Mm-hmm. So important. And that's how we build that resilience and that confidence. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and yeah, he, even he's you still telling- not allowed to sleep on on buses on on his own um also (laughs) i've read it in the book and hearing you tell it again i still got a little stomach ache just so you know so like (laughs) again it's not it doesn't mean it's always going to be comfortable right no and i wouldn't i i didn't want i wouldn't wish it on him it's it's an example of how things that can be pretty off i mean yes but for the remaining you know for the following five years so far or four years or five years it's been a, a real growth experience for him something yeah. he's proud of yeah right okay so in the last few minutes anything any differences you want to touch on about boys and girls or or even the fluidness of gender identity like did any of that come up in terms of um different areas that you want to focus on anything on that on gender yeah i mean i I, I acknowledge in the book that I, although I have chapters on boys and uh, on kids who identify as boys and mm-hmm. kids who identify as girls, mm-hmm. you know, I, I recognize there's a, a spectrum, mm-hmm. but there are some, gen- I do do some generalizing based on the research and based on my experience, there are differences between boys and girls. Uh, and so I have a chapter on how to communicate with middle school boys, and I have a chapter on how to empower girls, because what we see in this age group is that uh, girls, and the research supports this, between the ages of 8 and 14, their confidence drops 30%, and they do start to shy away from risks, and they start to try to take up less space physically. You know, they almost shrink in on themselves, and mm-hmm. if they're taking a test and you, and you stop them and question whether or not they are sure that it's the right answer, they're likely to change their answer. If they're playing sports and a goal comes in, they're going to be very quick to blame themselves. If they have a success, they're quicker to 
attribute that success to luck or to some other external force. Boys don't seem to struggle quite as much with uh, confidence in the same way. Um, although, again, boys this age do have insecurities as well. What I see, so I, I talk a lot in the book about how to keep girls taking, help girls continue to take risks, how to preserve their confidence, how to model that there are lots of different leadership styles. You know, you don't all have to be the class president to be a leader. And, you know, how can we cultivate girls' interests and passions in a way that keeps them, you know, speaking up and, and being assertive. Whereas boys, they're constricted by a different set of stereotypes. And I, I run, I've run a boys group for a few years, and mm -hmm. they are frustrated that they, they feel boxed in, that they have to conform to this stereotype that they don't really want trusting friendships, that they really aren't supposed to be as emotive. They have a much more limited range of acceptable emotions. And while they're worrying about a lot of the same things as girls and while they are they want to express who they are as an individual, even if it doesn't conform with society's expectations. Like they're not going to walk around and say, I hate sports, even if they do. So, and they also tend to pull in and they, they sometimes, not all, but some become much less communicative during these years. So parents will ask me, how can I keep that conversation going? They used to tell me everything. And I feel like I'm in the, the grunting years, you know, I ask yeah. how they are and I get, an, uh, so there's a lot in the boys' chapter on stereotypes about masculinity and how to mm -hmm. keep the lines of communication open with boys, particularly if they shut down, and then with girls on the empowerment piece. Mm -hmm. And I think just thinking of mine, like, so I have a daughter and a son, and so thinking about reading in terms of both chapters, what I've been doing is just trying to pull out, so what are the sort of more masculine tendencies even of my daughter? and the feminine mm -hmm. tendencies, right? Since we have both, all of us, like, and then yeah. same for him. So I also want to help him with his empowerment and his communication and with her. So it's interesting because I'm actually, even though I have one of each, I'm like trying to use the strategies and really think about it for both of the kids. Um, I, I love, I love that. that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, something that I talk about a little bit in the book and that I firmly believe is that, you know, dads play a really important role with girls mm -hmm. during the during as they go through puberty but it tends to be when they pull away mm -hmm. and there's really good research showing that it's extremely protective for dads to be more involved mm -hmm. even than when mm -hmm. their daughters were younger mm -hmm. and it's really powerful for boys to have relationships really strong relationships with their mothers often that's where they learn how to show curiosity and ask questions and and they might be willing to be a little bit more vulnerable. So both yeah. both parents can, you know, if there's someone asked there me are, recently, yeah. you know, what what if there's only a mom or only that of course, you know, when I when I say this, if there is a dad in the picture mm -hmm. or if there is mm -hmm. a mom in the picture. But I, I do think we need to recognize that everybody has something to offer to their kids, mm -hmm. particularly at this age in the role modeling department. Well it's just interesting too seeing like it's almost like you know, my daughter and I have a lot in common and have a lot of similar emotional experiences and have um, just that sort of intuition very naturally. But she is like gaga for my husband all of a sudden. Like everything <laughs> he says, she's just like, ha, 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 ha. Daddy, you're so funny. Like she's like so into him and like their, their laughter. And it's so, it may, it's so awesome to see um, oh, that's great. he loves her so much, obviously, and he thinks she's great and like supporting her. And they both actually, 
have dyslexia. And so they've really been like bonding over that. And I just feel really proud and excited of that because, because her and I have a lot in common. We spend a lot of time together. It's been really easy to get along, but it hasn't yeah. always been the case for them. And so I'm excited to see that. And I sort of take my son and we leave and let them have their time. <laughs> and, you know, it just, it feels really good to let them have and develop their own beat in their own relationship because I do. I just think it's so important. And I like not having to be so involved with everything. Like it, it feels yeah. good. <laughs> and, that, and the fact that he has dyslexia is so huge. You know, it's yeah. much harder for us as parents to really put ourselves in our kids' shoes if we haven't had the same experience. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's a relief for a child to say, oh my gosh, you know, this thing that I thought was such a big deal or that was getting in my way in X, Y, Z ways, my father, who's this awesome guy and who I look up to, he's got the same thing and he's managed and he's figured out how to make it work and he can help me. And it's just incredibly powerful to have that normalizing and that modeling for them. Yeah, it's been, it's been really cool. And he's like super into meditation and reading and healthy things these days. And so that's actually a relief because that pressure of like, mom's always telling me to read or mom's always telling me to eat healthy food. Like it's off of me, you know? And so like, yeah. that's just, it's, it's, it's been amazing just to have that balance. Um, okay. So your last statement, what do you want us to know? <laughs> Anything final, any final words? I would say, you know, this is a, an age where kids are going to you know, push your button sometimes, maybe they'll lie, maybe they will change dramatically or rebel or withdraw, but, you know, there's so much going on and your job is just to love them and be consistent and let them know that it's okay to make mistakes. It's very hard to get it wrong if you're there, you know, if you're there and you're supportive and you're not trying to mold them and you're not trying to control an outcome and you're just there as a support and as a coach and as a mentor and a role model. Mm -hmm. And if you're really struggling with that, get a therapist for yourself, right? Get some help 100%, yourself. 100%. Yeah. If yeah. you're finding yourself angry, screaming, controlling, sick, insomnia, you know, if you're going through it, please get your help, yourself some help so that you can process and digest um, yes. what you're and going there's through. No, obviously, there's no shame in that, but also I would also recommend that parents circle back and apologize to their kids when they mm. do lose control and say, mm. you know, I feel bad that I lost control and I, mm -hmm. I'm working on that too and mm -hmm. showing them how to make amends because sometimes kids, and I see this as a school counselor, sometimes kids have a fight with their parents and they don't bring it up again and their parent thinks everything is fine, but the kid is carrying that for, mm -hmm. for a while. Mm -hmm. So having that resolution can be helpful to everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, anything creative that people have done with the book? So some schools are having discussions. What are other ways like people can interact with your book, your website, your work? I am, I'm doing some, I've been Skyping in actually with some parent book groups and there are school, whole school systems. I know Alhambra uh, district in California has gotten a grant to give it to their middle school parents and then they're doing an educator parent book club to to help open communication between the two groups so i think that the probably the most useful way to make this a social experience or an interactive experience is to take advantage of the parent discussion guide or the educator discussion guide in the back i also have a pdf 
of the educator discussion guide on my website, which is phyllisfagel.com, and I can also provide a PDF of the parent discussion guide if people want to print it out. And then just whether it's a small group or whether it's a school organized event, opening up a dialogue about these issues. There's something so powerful in, in normalizing an experience that we tend to just muddle through on our own. And it's a, it's the same for adults and parents as it is for students. You know, when I have affinity groups, so when I have a class and I did an exercise with kids today where I had them write down on index cards something where they could use help. And it could be as simple as I need a book recommendation to as involved as I really wish I had someone I could confide my secrets to. And the kids didn't write their names on the cards, but afterwards I had them lay them out on the floor and I had everyone else walk around and write their name on the card if they thought it was something they could help them out with. Mm. And they could also write me too if they couldn't help them, but they just wanted them to know that it was something they struggled with too. And at the end, you know, the kids were worried there would be cards that nobody said they could help. Mm. But at the end, there were names on every card. I read them out so the kids would know who they could go to for support. And there were so many me too's. You know, somebody wrote, I struggle with organization and I get, or I'm, I, I feel a lot of pressure mm. and me too's all over the place. And, mm. and the kids, you could almost see the visible relief. Like not only are other people feeling this too, but they want to help me. Like we want to help each other. And, and mm. middle schoolers are inherently such good people. And that came through in this exercise, but it's, the same need that we all have and that parents have too. Mm -hmm. So anytime you get into a group discussion with other parents who have middle school kids, doesn't matter if your particular issue is that your child has dyslexia and their issue is that their child doesn't know how to read social cues, but just understanding that they all are growing and changing rapidly and having mm -hmm. that support is important. Yeah. I need the me too parents. <laughs> I need my own circle. <laughs> um, yeah, Phyllis, me too parents. you are the bestest. You, this book literally could not have come at the most perfect time. So I divinely oh, manifested God. you into my life <laughs> <laughs> so that this could be a resource as I transition, um, in our family and the challenges. Um, and it's just provided so much support practical advice, wisdom, and just, again, that sort of knowing, like, I'm not alone. Um, this is not in isolation. And I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I always love talking to you. Yay. Okay. Talk to you soon. Yay. Thanks, Phyllis. You're Bye. welcome. Bye.